As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. All right, welcome to the latest edition of Hear That Podcast, Growling, Paul Daner Jr. and Jay Morrison of The Athletic. It's a good day, Jay. It's a great day. We've got a month, less than a month. A little less. A little less than a month till we get to the draft. And I would, you know, I'd prefer the draft happened yesterday. Because <laughs> we, we, man, we've, we're just, you're so deep in it at this point. Like, I just, man, I'm ready. I'm ready. But we're, that doesn't mean... We're not going to be deep in it for the next month. But I, it's like we're at that point now where I know how deep in it we're going to get even worse. Like, we're, there's just, we're in Bengals fan civil war mode at this point. Like, it's just, all of it's just quite intense. So it's, it's a little, it's a little deep. There's a reason we call it the best beer of the year. It's, we, we earn it. And I'm looking forward to May 1st to, yeah. to, Drink that, which is actually my anniversary, which is actually a day I will sp- be spending alone covering the draft. I think my wife's taken off for Florida that day. So your yeah. wife, your wife leaves for Florida. You're working by yourself. It really, hey, you know what? C- celebrate, celebrate in the ways that you do, you know? Yeah. At this point, 28 years, that's the <laughs> that's big anniversary. Yeah. We're just, yeah. <laughs> We're just counting down to 50. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all right, we we have a lot of very interesting stuff to get to today. So, as we kind of you know go through over the next month, we're we're I'm um, um, we're pumped about this. It's I know for me, it's one of my favorite projects we do all year. Um, Jay, I think you you would agree. It's yes. it's going through our draft strategy series and that's it's 11 parts it's each position really taking a deep dive look at at trends Bengals fits where they stand at roster wise what they're going to be looking for some of the variables in play sleepers to track what they're saying what players are saying um you know getting a real good look for how they're going to approach this draft by each position and it's a really good chance to single out each one. And I, and I really want to pair as we go through these now. Um, and those are up. Uh, they've started on the side offensive line, came out on Monday, uh, running back out on Tuesday today as we record this. I really want us, as we go through it, to be able to talk it out 
a little bit further. So for the next month, we're, we're going to talk through these as we as they get released and give you kind of a, a deeper look of the perspective of, of what we already have up on the site. Um, and again, if, you, if you're not a subscriber, we highly recommend you subscribing. Uh, hop on board and you get all this, all our draft coverage and everything obviously is kicking up up under the entire athletic umbrella but um really excited so I, I like the idea of us piggybacking as we go through and so offensive line and running back are going to be our focuses of today's podcast as we look forward but we have more than that so we have uh tyson alger who is our oregon beat writer has been covering the ducks for eight years uh you know he's as inside as it gets he's done He's done a great story um, on the Sewell family and talks a little bit about this. We did have an interview with him talking about Panay Sewell's pro day, what it was like him coming out of the – it's kind of like Bigfoot. Like, it was like <laughs> We haven't really seen or heard of him except for everybody's just talking about him. So he kind of came out of the woodwork a little bit. Uh, so we, we would talk with Tyson about who Panay Sewell is, what this pro day was like, a little bit about what you'd be getting if you got him. And, and I, I really enjoyed our, our talk with him. Yeah, I talked to him a little bit earlier in the in this whole lead up to the draft, and he does, he's he's really plugged in with with Oregon, and had some interesting background on Panay. Um, that is a very interesting family, and and you'll hear some of that in our conversation with him. So we'll get into that. Um, I have a conversation that I had last week. Um, that just kind of <laughs> wasn't able to really uh, find get to last week as we were kind of doing a lot of other stuff. Uh, but it was a conversation with Steven Radicevic, uh, who is the Bengals director of pro scouting. And so we talked on Wednesday. Um, and we talked through, we kind of put a bow on free agency a little bit, talked a little bit about looking ahead to what this next month is going to look like and how they're going through it. Uh, I want to make sure we bring you some of that conversation. Uh, so we'll, we'll bring you that, and then we'll dive into uh, the running backs. You'll also hear from Penesel, um as we as from our, the Zoom that he did on Monday uh, with reporters, and including Jay, who was in there and got to ask him about the Bengals sign that was hanging up in the stadium. And uh, I thought it was a fun answer to that. So um, a lot that we're going to get to uh, there. Last week, Jamar Chase and Kyle Pitts had their pro days, uh, and they were freaks. They were athletic freaks. But during that, Jamar Chase did his Zoom interview, and he had a, this great he, – he's from Louisiana, right? So he's got this like he's got this this great tone to him, and Jay, you were in there, and he would just keep kind of you know greeting questions as they came in. What did it sound like? How you doing? How you doing? How you doing? <laughs> <laughs> and, and and so that he those were three different times that he responded that way, and so we cut him up. We have him like that, and since we know for the next month we're going to talk about Jamar Chase, pretty much every podcast as people are on board, that's going to be our Jamar Chase drop. Can I get that one? Can I hear that one more time, Cam? How you doing? How you doing? How you doing? <laughs> I love it. I love that was, it. That was his. Anytime somebody said, "How are you today? How are you doing?" Or, you know, any kind of anytime. Most reporters just go straight to their question, but some of them know him from covering him over the years, so they would ask him one of those questions: "How you doing?" And he always answered the question with the question, how you doing? So we, we cut <laughs> him up it. and stripped him together, and it, it's great. <laughs> I love it. And you know what? And it's our way to introduce the, hey, it's time to talk about Jamar Chase. So he's going to introduce himself and say hello. How you doing? How you doing? Uh, 
<laughs> I love it. So here we go. Uh, let's let's dive into the offensive line, and and we have to start with the guy, right, Penasel. Um, there is there's like, here's the thing, Jay. Tell me if you feel this way. It seems like we've gotten to the point that the the Jamar Chase side is so dug in um, that. It's just looking for every way to rip up Penesel. And the, and it's funny, you know, you saw Sewell go off on Friday and we and we had earlier in the week Pitts and Chase and they were freaks, right? And they tested wild and these crazy numbers and Raz scores and all this stuff. And and then Sewell comes out and we're talking about arm length. And we're talking about oh, he only did 30 bench reps and he wasn't a total freak. And I don't. I get nervous when you start getting obsessed with workout numbers instead of the way they play. Yeah, I mean that that essentially is what it comes down to. And I remember I, with the arm length. I, I remember talking to Paul Alexander, the former Bengals offensive line coach, down at the Senior Bowl, and and he was a little nervous not about the arm length, but about the height. Um, he, he said. You know, anything under six five is a concern, and he came in just under that. It was what six four and seven eighths. Mm-hmm. But he he said that after working him out, and and Panay mentioned uh, Paul Alexander really helping him uh, coming to California and working with him. He mentioned that on his Zoom on Monday, and Paul said he he's not going to do it, but he could take off his shirt and show me the bruises on his chest. From that's how powerful Panay is with his punches. Um, so. Yeah, it's the measurements are there just to kind of compare and contrast other guys. They are not the end all. But ultimately, it comes down to how these guys play, what they look like on tape, and and Panay Sewell's tape is otherworldly. His tape is great, and you know what people say about him is really good. Uh, let's let's do arm length here real quick. Let's just go ahead. Let's let's just let's just talk about arm length, okay? Penesul's arm length came in at 33 and a quarter. Now, thir- uh, there's, you know, the thought is less than 34 is less than ideal. Okay. And if you're talking about taking somebody at the fifth overall pick in the draft, you don't want to be uttering excuses. You don't want to feel like you've got to yeah, but your way through that conversation, right? You want to, you want to be, you know, no weaknesses, only insane strengths. Like you, you want to feel like it's an absolute home run and not be making excuses for that person. And you're, you're going to have to do that with Panay Sewell from a physical standpoint, like you mentioned, shorter than 6'5", and the arm length is not perfect. Um, so I went through, I was like, well, let's, let's talk about this. Let's talk about the reality of the arm length. So I went through the last three years and tracked down the any player, that had finished in the any any tackle that had finished in the top ten graded by PFF as a top ten tackle over the last three years. It produced twenty two different names. These are the guys playing at the top of the game right now that you want. Any one of those guys you would these guys you would take. By the way, uh, if you're the Bengals, and arm length on all of them coming out, and the average was thirty four point two, and you had 22 guys, and it, you would have Panay Sewell in 
tied for the third shortest arms. The range, Braden Smith was the outlier on the short side at 32 and a quarter. Then Jason Peters at 33.1. Then Lael Collins at 33.25. That's where Penesul would be. Okay. The vast majority, you know, the majority of them are up over 34, up into the 36. Tyron Smith at 36.4 is the highest. So, yes, he would be on the bottom end of this spectrum, but he's on the spectrum and, you know, he's in that mix. And if you have a special power and, and physicality and technique and the right you know men, mentality and work ethic and all that stuff, that's what makes up for all this stuff. And if you told the Bengals they're signing Lael Collins right now, how'd they feel about that? Where does he sign? <laughs> Pretty good, right? If you could guarantee a Lael Collins and what he's been in his time with Dallas is arriving in Cincinnati, you'll take that. Even at the f- number five, you would definitely take that. Let's talk about solidify. It's exactly what you want. Can play guard, can play tackle, solidifying you for now and the future, all those things. A game changer to solidify yourself up front. Like there, There's a lot of similar characteristics body type-wise between those two. Now, I'm not saying that Penesel is Lael Collins. I'm saying... If you're going to get into the physical game, if you're going to talk arm length, if you're going to talk body size, you're going to talk play style, you can see some similarities there. You know, something else that that I find interesting, and I guess maybe we should talk to a doctor who's an expert in growth plates and that type of things, but, you know, I was still growing at 20 and 21. I wasn't my full height, and, and Panay Sewell's young. He's 20. I mean, there. It's not like his arms are going to go out to 35, anything crazy like that. But, I mean, there is there's the potential there. We never see that. You These guys get measured when they come into the league, and then there's never any reason for them to get measured again. And it would be interesting to see that the younger guys that come into the league, if they – obviously, they're, they're going to put on weight. They're, they're going to be in a more regimented weightlifting program. Um, so that's another reason not to kind of worry. Oregon's offense being what it is, maybe it's – not so surprising that that he only did 30 benches and um, that, that they were more predicated on speed. He's going to get in the weight room. He's only 20. He's going to get stronger in that regard. But I, I do wonder if if he's going to add some length to the to the arms, the wingspan, even to his height a little bit. Yeah. And for those talk about his pro day numbers, I mean, he had uh, you know some some explosive numbers when you talk about broad and and vert and things like that. And so you you know you can you can see where it comes from. You just got to watch the tape. I mean, um, that's the some of the important stuff. And Mario Cristobal, their head coach. I mean, <laughs> now granted, he's going to come out there and speak glowingly. You know that. But the stuff. I mean, basically calling him the best overall player he's been around from a football IQ and, and production standpoint, best lineman and how it's going to anger a lot of former great Oregon linemen and, and all this stuff. I mean, look, it is what it is. I mean, the, the, the guy can play. He made a difference. Um, let's hear from Panay Sewell uh, on a couple of things. A couple of questions from Jay about potentially playing guard, uh, the sign that hung on the Bengals stadium, and, uh, and then another question where he was asked uh, to kind of describe his play. You can kind of get a feel for what he feels like he needs to bring. So here was Panay Sewell uh, from a Zoom interview following his pro day. Could you describe for the folks in Atlanta what your game is like and how you like to play along the offensive line? 
Uh, I like to play real physical. Uh, I like to use my my body type to my advantage and to really get up in under people's chin and to really show showcase my uh, mentality also to go along with my physicality that I'm coming off the ball every play with violent intentions and uh, that nothing less is coming from that. Hey, Panay, Jay Morrison from The Athletic in Cincinnati. I'm just wondering, obviously, if a team that drafts you asks you to play guard, you're not going to rock the boat and say no, but how motivated would you be to to prove them wrong in camp and prove you're one of the two best tackles on the roster? And secondly, did anyone make you aware of the the sign that Bengals fans hung in the stadium about you at the end of last year? Uh, so, yeah, with that first question, I'd love to prove everything that I have on my plate to really come out every day, each and every day, to prove that I'm worthy to be in this league and to be a tackle in this league. And uh, whatever I have to do, whatever steps that looks like, I will I will do and I will accomplish it. And then that second question, yes, I did. I did see it. I was uh, I was playing video games with my brothers, and then uh, my agent hit me. He was talking and uh, saying that there's this big sign on the, on the game right now. You should turn it on. So I turned it on, and I, <laughs> I saw it. There's Pene Sewell, a violent style of play. Yeah, that's what you want, right? Viol- it We're all about vi- it's about violence, right? It, it, well, and just that nastiness. I mean, that's what this this team has been missing. You know, they've 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 had some leaders that have 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 not really had that mean streak. The AJ Greens, the Andy Daltons, those type of guys. You you need someone out there with with some attitude. And and I loved the way he answered the the question I asked him about the banner, because, you know, you can't, you obviously can't see him on this platform, but I did tweet that video and just the big smile on his face. Like he was, he was truly flattered that there was an NFL fan base talking about him. Um, he really thought it was cool that, that they hung that, that banner. You know, a lot of times these guys are kind of, yeah, I heard about it. And they're, they're, they're kind of more measured and brush it off, but you could tell it, it, it was something that, that really flattered him. And, earlier in that we, we saw this with the Jamar Chase thing where all the questions about playing with Joe Burrow again and he kind of downplayed it and said he wouldn't mind it um when there were numerous reporters asking Panay about playing with Justin Herbert again and he was if he had his choice that's where he would go he, he just talked about how much he loved him and how great it would be it would be a dream come true to play with him again in the NFL um it, it, I guess it's if if it's not the Bengals there's there's maybe a chance that that happens, but um, it was it was interesting to see those two different styles where one kind of just said, eh, if it happens, it happens, and the other was, yeah, sign me up. Yeah, that is, you know, there's a lot probably to unpack there, and we, and we will as we get closer involving, you know, Chase and Burrow connection and Cincinnati and all that stuff. All right, let's take a second and switch gears here and hear from a sponsor. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Let's get to Tyson. Um, you know, and, and then we can tie a little bit of a bow around the Panay Sewell conversation for now. Um, so Tyson, uh, as we mentioned at the top of the show, has been covering the Ducks for eight years. He's obviously been in depth with the entire staff and with Sewell and with his family and knows a ton about this. So he was a great guy to talk to in this case. So he, he this as much this is as deep a background as you can get uh on Panay Sewell and, and what you're getting with him. So here is our, our our Oregon writer, Tyson Alger. I'm jealous. I love the Pacific Northwest. We don't get out there often enough. Like we go to Seattle once every eight years or something like that. So uh, I'm, I, I try to get up there as much as I can, but I'm, I'm jealous of you being uh, stationed up there. This is like one of the days where it's actually worth like bragging about it, too. I'm looking out and it's like sunny. It's supposed to be like sunny and like 68 ish today. So like I'm not complaining a whole lot. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a good day to be out here. <laughs> how, how long have you been covering Oregon? Uh, this will be my eighth season coming up my, my first year covering them was the 2014 season where they won the Rose Bowl and went to the went to the playoffs so that was a, a pretty good pretty good pretty good time to jump on that train <laughs> it's been a fun run out there I, I, I for the sake of obviously that from the Bengals perspective every all eyes on number 58 or who was number 58 uh Panay Sewell I'll start here before we, as we just jump in can you set the scene for me at the pro day on Friday um there's kind of been this mystery, I guess, maybe around Penesul and where he's been for the year and how he's going to look and what's going to happen. What what was that scene like uh, Friday as he comes out for his pro day? Well, I'll, I'll have to illustrate it to you the same way that probably you guys saw it on TV because Oregon and the NFL didn't let any media in there outside of the, the specific NFL NFL network reporters. But um, ha- having talked to Penny through throughout the last couple months and knowing that he's been training down in L.A., uh, like this kid's been on a mission. Like, like, I, I don't, I don't think there's been, you know, there's, there's not really been any talk of like him, like having like a massive fall, like out of the first round or anything. But like, when you start to hear some other like tackles or offensive linemen kind of coming into the conversation, like this, this is a player and who comes from a family who's incredibly competitive. They, he thinks that he's the best at what he does. And uh, I, I think especially just having not been able to perform in front of anybody for uh, it's been since the Rose bowl. I, I, I think that that pro day was, was a big thing to him to, to be able to do that, even though it was a, a very kind of muted uh, performance just because of uh, the, the COVID restrictions. Was there something that he was focused on specifically in, in getting ready for the pro day? I mean, he, he's such a freak athletically. Anyhow, I can't imagine if he felt he had to, to really improve one area, but when you, when your conversations with him, was there anything that he, he really was focused on? You know, strength has never been his issue. I mean, this kid has been a a monster since he came to Oregon when he was 17. I mean, he was like, I think he was like 338 as a 17-year-old true freshman when he came in. So he's always been been a strong guy, but a a lot of the things that they've been kind of working on 
um, during his training process has been a little bit of the agility and flexibility and, and just kind of being, you know, he, he's never a rigid guy, but just kind of working on uh, kind of like becoming more fluid. That was, that was, that's kind of been the focus the last few months. Yeah. Everybody focuses on, they need a guy to protect Joe Burrow and, and pass pro, but what, how is he as a run blocker? I mean, I know he's, he's got the athleticism to get to the second level and we've seen him maul some guys, but consistently has he been pretty strong as a, as a run blocker? Yeah. Yeah. There, there was no real, like one thing that he looked better at during his time at Oregon and, and some of his run blocks or, I mean, that was probably the most fun to watch him because especially as they were moving up field, like he would, <laughs> he was basically just a heat seeker for anybody that was moving towards him. I mean, there, there's a, there's a couple, a couple drives. Uh, there's one play Oregon offensive lineman coach Alex Mirabal likes to talk about. It was from his freshman year. I believe they were playing Stanford where Sewell was was keeping pace with, uh, I believe it was C.J. Verdell, their running back, and just clearing house the whole way up the left side of the sideline as they, as they were moving. So um, he, he's, he's very fun to watch in run blocking scheme just because of how aggressive he plays. It's weird. You know, we, we've reached that part of the, the draft season where everyone's coming up trying to invent things and reasons to pick these guys apart that are, you know, going to be great pros. The thing that has popped up to me uh, that people mention and, and is talking about, oh, there's questions about his maturity, right? What what do we make? Have you heard this? And has he heard this? What have you made of that? How has that landed locally? Uh, it, it, I, that's a funny one just because having been around him for three years and it, you know, whenever, whenever somebody's in this position, you start to hear a whole bunch of stuff that maybe you would, you wouldn't have even thought was the case. Like not once have I ever thought about Penny Sewell's maturity as, as being an issue. I think maybe he missed, I think he was late for one meeting his freshman year. And then other than that, like it's been pretty, it's been pretty steady. And I mean, like this, this is a guy who's a year younger than everybody in this class too. So maybe if you're talking about like overall maturity of somebody like becoming a man, like, sure. I, I, I guess if, if, if you want to look at like the, the, the science of ages and, and that sort of thing, but like he was, he was an unquestioned team leader. Uh, he, he was kind of the main guy in the locker room, especially for a team that, you know, Justin Herbert was like the most talented player on that team, but Justin Herbert wasn't the raw, raw guy in the locker room. That was, that was Penny Sewell, especially on the offensive side of the ball. Um, he, he's a guy that, that, that cared a lot about the season. Uh, I don't think there was anybody who was more consistent from play to play in terms of the intensity that they brought. Um, so, yeah, I mean, like that's, I, that, that just kind of feels like first round draft talk to me when, when you're just trying to find something on a guy because uh, that, that's, that's never been an issue at Oregon. Did he grow into that, that rah-rah leader his sophomore year? Or was he like that from the get-go as a freshman and just natural to him? I, I would say it probably came around maybe halfway through that freshman year because he, you know, a, a lot of the guys Oregon brings in, they try to get him to early enroll and come in for spring practice and to kind of get those freshmen a head start. Sewell didn't do that. He he arrived in like late July as a 17-year-old true freshman and was a starting left top tackle within within four weeks. And and so I do think there was a little bit of an adjustment of just kind of feeling himself out in that process because he was on a line that had, had I believe it was four juniors at the time. So just kind of like finding your voice and like kind of like that that pedestal of, of where you stand. But after after about three games or so, it was pretty obvious he was the best guy in that line. And uh, he has the personality, he kind of has that alpha personality too, where uh, once he kind of proved what he could do, he, he wasn't shy about, you know, being able to tell other guys like what they should be doing as well. 
you mentioned this, and I've heard this a lot in, in regards to him, and it's t- talking about the competitiveness. And I, I'm I'm curious about the view of him as a practice player, and and what that how much that spilled over in what we read about how he kind of helped set the bar for the whole line and raise all boats type thing i mean what what was your view of him as maybe that being part of where the competitiveness showed up a lot with him yeah that that's been that's kind of been a big focus since mario cristobal took over uh i guess this would be four years now is just they 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 practice a lot of ones-on-ones in practice and you know especially the last two years watching or you know, I, I say watching in loose terms because we we were able to watch what they wanted us to watch. So it wasn't always this, but the reported stories of him going against Kayvon Thibodeau in practice, who could potentially be a, a, a very high first round pick next season. Uh, those two loved going against each other and they found that competition within there. And that, that really carried over to, to, um, to gameplay. Um, and I mean, it's, I really wish that we would have been able to get about 30 minutes of access just watching those guys go against each other. Because, I mean, for, for as much as people talk about Sewell and, and kind of his hierarchy in terms of a best organ alignment of all time, Thibodeau is right up there as well. Like, these are two of the best linemen that Oregon's ever had that have been practicing, practicing against each other the last two years. And I, I haven't heard Sewell talk about it as much specifically just because we, we didn't have him around this year. But this year, like, Thibodeau talked a lot about those battles with Sewell and just like how that kind of developed him as a, as an edge rusher. These guys all, no matter how highly they're touted, they all come in with some sort of chip on their shoulder. Um, it, I don't know if, it, is there something for him? Maybe it's this recent talk of the immaturity. Is there something else you think that maybe perhaps the, the lack of uh, quality competition question and not a lot of edge rushers in the Pac-12. I mean, is there something you think that is sits as a chip on his shoulder? Yeah, I, I think some of the overall kind of like Pac-12 talk probably probably motivates him a little bit. Just, I mean, it's 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 an easy way to discount what somebody on this side of the country does by just saying like, oh, it's coming against like these type of players. And, you know, I've, I've covered this league for eight years now. Like the Pac-12 just doesn't have the same defensive linemen that you see in other parts of the country. I don't think that's an issue for, for him. Uh, so I, <laughs> I, I think, cause I mean, you can look back and like when they played Auburn in, in the opener two years ago, I mean, he was just as good in that game as he was against any other team he's played throughout his career. Uh, so I think a mixture of that and, and just, you know, this, this is a guy who's representing his family. He's, he's the fourth of fourth of the Sewell boys to play D one college football, but he'll be the first one with his opportunity to make the NFL. And, uh, they're a very prideful family. That's why they moved to the U.S. from uh, Samoa to to kind of have a future for for uh, um, th- that's why the Sewell family moved out there was so their their sons could have a few football future. And now Penny is going to be the first one that really has that opportunity to uh, take it to the next level. Can you paint a little more background of that family? I mean, and your what your uh, communication has been like with them, writing stuff about them, you know, over the years, and, and exactly that that backstory. It's it seems pretty fascinating. Yeah. So uh, Gabriel Sewell Senior is is the patriarch of the family, and, and they have the the four boys, and uh, they moved they moved from Samoa to Orem, I believe it was in 2012, and I mean, like it was kind of like the quintessential they grew up around the beach like the boys were throwing coke bottles filled with sand uh dad was a, a high school coach and like the the boys even when they were too young were sneaking into practice with helmets and, and pads on and, and they've always had this 
this long mantra of, of Sewell's don't sit on the bench. Like that's kind of the mentality of, of where these guys come from. They, they, they have a lot of pride. They're, they're physical freaks. Um, and then they just kind of eat up that game of football. And uh, so there's, there's, but I mean, <laughs> thinking about it now, having four former Division One football players all living in, in a, I believe it was a one bedroom house. You know, guys were sleeping on the floor, a lot of family in there. Um, so yeah, it, it's whenever Sewell Penny does get drafted, it's going to be a long way from from definitely his roots of growing up in the Pacific. I have to imagine there were a few wrestling matches. <laughs> That occurred in that one bedroom house. <laughs> well, and, and it's 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 insane too because like so his younger brother Noah Sewell is a it's a you call it a second year freshman in Oregon now because of this uh, this redo year that we've had. But that kid's insane too. He's like six foot three, a two hundred. He's about a two hundred seventy pound linebacker right now, and he, he's eighteen and a half years old. Like he's he, he might be a crazier physical freak than Penny is, and that's that's saying something. And so it's uh. I know Oregon fans certainly felt shortchanged not being able to watch Penny play last year, but at least they got like the fourth iteration of the family coming in now. Uh, and all he did was he was an athletic freshman All-American last year. So he's, he's pretty, pretty good genes there. That uh, that Sewell's don't sit on the bench mantra. This wouldn't actually be sitting on the bench, but it, I mean, it feels like the, the plan is going to be if he comes to Cincinnati, he's going to play guard his first year. Do you think? I mean, he's going to say all the right things and say I'll do whatever the coaches ask me to do. But you think that's going to light a fire? I mean, he's going to come in and do everything possible to to say you you can't play me anywhere but tackle in his first camp in Cincinnati. If yeah, if he ends I, 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 yeah, I, I I think so. I, I don't think he's anyone that's going to happily. I mean, like he'll he'll play wherever they play him, but like I don't think he's going to be somebody that like happily takes a demotion and says, you need to do this until you improve to, to take on the role that you really want. I mean, I, if, if he wants to go in there dead set on being a tackle, I, I don't see that guy stopping until, uh, you know, he, he's, he's protecting Burrow out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's going to be really interesting to see what happens to him. He's it, especially when you throw in these opt outs, you know, it's, it's such a, a different evaluation when you talk about trying to figure out what's going to happen. And Sewell's been one of the most interesting examples of that. I think everybody came away loving what they'd seen from, but really, and I'm sure Oregon fans are at the front of this list, wishing they just could have gotten that one more year run of seeing how he had developed physically and continuing to be that dominating force. I guess the Oregon fans, have they let it go yet? Are they over it? Yeah. I, I don't think so because I mean because it, 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 it wasn't just Sewell either they lost they lost like three really good players from their defense like they had the potential like they thought kind of behind Sewell that they had the potential to make a playoff run this past season and and they just had way too much taken out of it to really stand a chance I mean Stool was going to be the one returner on the offensive line so instead of replacing four guys now you're replacing five along with being one of the best in program history so it was uh, it was a pretty disappointing season, even though they did win the conference title, but it just just kind of felt like it was empty. Um, now, around Oregon, they do get pretty pretty stoked about like recruiting and, and those sort of things that come around. So like it's been it's it's been uh, uh, I, I, don't, I wouldn't say it's been forgotten about over the last couple of months, but uh, especially now that spring practice is coming around and you get those storylines of like how good this team can be. Like I, I feel like Oregon fans are finally coming to come arriving to a place where they feel okay with what they weren't able to have last year, just because you have something new coming around. But yeah, it, it, 
it sucked, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, I think everybody feels away, and everybody's excited to see what he looks like in the NFL. And there's a chance he'll be uh, doing it here in Cincinnati, protecting Joe Burrow. Tyson, I appreciate your time. As always, uh, in, enjoy the uh, beautiful weather out there, and uh, hope we'll be we'll catch up with you again uh, uh, if if you know the ne- the next soul lands in the <laughs> NFL, or uh, if if Penny ends up in Cincinnati. So thanks again for for joining us. Yeah, yeah thanks guys. Thanks, Tyson. All right, much thanks to Tyson uh, for joining us, who does a fantastic job covering the Ducks. Again, that's like one of my favorite parts about working here is is no matter where a player's coming from, no matter where the story is at, like we can, we just got somebody who's been covering the team for eight years and knows everybody. So uh, it's it, it's great to we're going to try to keep inviting these guys in as much as we can as we go through this month to get us a better look at some of the top prospects and and things like that. And of course, once they draft guys, we'll have lots of insight uh, from our, our our college staff as we run through this uh, one last thing you know you know it, so whether they the Bengals go for Sewell at the top or not is really it just all comes down to what their evaluation is you know we've seen if you look at your top pundits and I sort of listed these in the draft I mean you know you're talking about Everybody except Daniel Jeremiah has Sewell as number one, but there's you know how far ahead at number one is he? Is you know it, is there would you see him sliding to ten or eleven? As people aren't super sure, and there's this we mentioned with Tyson, the question is out there about his maturity has been dropped out there. So is that is character stuff going to come into play? Look, we. The, the the Bengals offensive line brain trust was together. Duke Tobin, Zach Taylor, and Frank Pollock were all obviously at Oregon. That's no surprise. That's an absolutely as expected. They, you know, this is an important decision. They need to know more. This we haven't really seen much from them, so they're there to make sure they have all the information they can possibly get, and everybody can be together to to talk their way through it. It's because. You know, that's going to be a part of this. Is is when you get into the character stuff, that's going to be a part of this too, and. We don't know what those conversations and how much that is affecting and what other teams are learning around the league about these guys. And if that's a part of the equation, that's what we don't see. So we don't know. And, and, but if you can get a guy can come out like Tristan Wirfs or Jedrick Wills Jr. or Makai Becton, all sit, you know, you, if you were putting all those guys together, Sewell would be right in the mix with them. And Andrew Thomas, who did not play so well, the third overall pick uh, f- from the Giants. But if you put all those guys together, Sewell would be right in that same mix. If you get what you got from those three guys, in particular, last year here with this pick, that's a win. And and, and I think there's a pretty good chance that's what you know he he projects to be that. And I think you got to think of it that way. Um, whether you're talking about Lael Collins or Werfs or Wills or Beckton, these are guys that you're familiar with because you've seen them play in the NFL. That if you're projecting, that's what you're going to get. I mean, think about the difference that those guys made for their teams. And those guys all stepped in and played tackle right off the bat, and it, maybe that's maybe it is better for for Panay if he if he was to step in and and play guard. He's he said that's he would do what asked, but he's he's not going to like it. He's gonna he's gonna do everything in his possible to change their minds. But but yeah, they, the the whole the, you mentioned it before the digging in. I I would I'm surprised that the the Jamar side of the fan base is, is digging in the way they are. I, I would think they would, it would be the other way where the there's people, it has to be an offensive line. And we, we saw what they've been over the past few years. We saw the issues that Joe had last year. It's gotta be offensive line. It's gotta be offensive line. And it's, 
it's really yeah you called it a civil war and it, that is what it feels like it's it's really surprising the way i see it is you can't lose either way you're going to get a great player um it's going to address a, a major need and maybe the other one goes on and has a great career but they, they just I don't know which way they go. I, I'm still leaning toward Chase. We got three more weeks to talk about this, but it is interesting just the hearing Panay Sewell and as impressive as he came across in his Zoom, you know it had to be equally so in his his one-on-one meetings with the Bengals. And they, they put a lot of stock in that and in, in, in getting to know a guy and and who they are beyond just the film. So it would be really interesting to see where – where at this point their their board lines up between those two because really that it's it it's down to those two. Yeah, you throw. I mean, you throw pits in there depending on how you know things break down. I mean, you you could uh, you know we had the trade for Sam Darnold by the Panthers that happened um, on Monday, and you know the, that seems to have dictated which direction the Panthers are going to go. That they're you know, especially when it uh, a Jonathan Jones from CBS uh, came out and reported that they're going to give extend his fifth year option. That's two years of Sam Darnold. It's a big number they're buying in on the on the fifth year of Sam Darnold. They're in for Sam Darnold. So Carolina, it, you know, from from where I sit, is off the table. Um, at least in, in terms of an urgent trade up type move that you would expect from them. So you know, your trade partners are now lessening. And Atlanta is still there potentially looking to take on those offers. So, you know, whether you're talking about Denver potentially, but they have Drew Locke. They don't have an urgency necessarily, even though they could be the, certainly the team to come up and make that play. New England, you know, is going to be interested in coming up that, that far. You don't want to go back that far, I don't think. Duke Tobin did an interview with the team website uh, and and uh, with Dan Horde as they, they kind of put him out internally. Um and and talked about look I'm, we're not going to move back and risk losing a premier talent and you know we keep saying these three names and two names over and over again you know what that means you know and I you know there's a chance if you end up even at nine you're not going to get one of the premier talents you may and they may have other guys up there but, but uh, I think it, it it lessens the chance of a trade back which I think is where maybe a pits would come into play. Tight ends are coming up this week. We'll dive into Kyle Pitts even further and discuss that a little bit more as we go on. Let's talk about the the other option, and that is no Penesul. Okay, let's get into the second round, the third round, the fourth round. We discussed in in the mock draft lead up and things like that the idea of the double up, right? A, a traditional Bengals method of of going in twice at a position. And now you're bringing Bengals offensive line evaluation into play, and that is uh, uh, not prettier, as I said. In the, you know, warning: not safe for work. I put in when you're looking at the uh, the history of Bengals drafting offensive linemen recently. You're bringing that into play, but there are plenty of quality players that will be available in the second, third, even in the fourth round, maybe that you, at least under the terms that you would consider starting on day one. What is, what does that look like? You know, I mean, there's a lot of talk about Alex Leatherwood out of Alabama. You know, um, again, there's there's you're talking about who are these guys that can come in and play guard and or and or tackle where you're considering moving Riley Reef inside or whatever. And especially when you talk about guard, I mean, there's a lot of guys that can come in 
even at your third round pick, probably, and you would say, okay, we can we can play that guy day one at guard, especially after a camp where he looks solid, um, and you'll have him in house and, and get some preseason games in. Um, you, I think you could certainly see that, and there's there's plenty of guys to look at there. I mean, they did it a couple of years ago with Michael Jordan, a fourth round pick. So they're they're yeah, not averse to it. Well, exactly, <laughs> but they're they're not averse to it. So right, um, yeah, the, and. That was more of a, you know, I don't know if it was a, a misread because they did. They benched him, then they went back to him. But you're right. It did not work out well. But the, the, that option is there to, to take a, a third-round guy and, and plug him in right away. They're, they're not loaded at guard right now. And depending – I don't think that would be the plan as soon as they draft the guy. But if the guy comes in and plays really well in camp – um, you, you talked about it. It's, it's almost a certainty that we're going to see a rookie start somewhere on that offensive line. Yeah. So the other bit of research uh, that I did is involved trying to trying to really give you an idea, a true gauge of what you should expect in in success percentage when you're talking about starting a rookie on the offensive line. And I don't know that the number surprised me. Um, but you know, when I kind of went back through the last 10 years and I tiered out into four groups, you know, how the, a rookie offensive lineman that played at least 600 snaps. So guys that really played rookies that really played and how they graded out in terms of in comparison to the rest of the league, you know, you divide top 25% or the above average. So 50 to 75%, the below average 25 to 50% or the liability in the bottom quarter. You know, where do they all fall? 41% of rookies, and there were 115 of them, 41% were liabilities as rookies, guard, tackle center, whatever. I don't know if that felt like a big number, uh, but I think it's good to keep that in mind when you're talking about this. Now, the less liability percentage is going to come when you have a pick a guy higher in the draft, but if you're in the second, third round, you're in you're in the liability zone, uh, big time. And so, think about that coin flip. You know, basically, and all. Not only that, forty one percent in the liability range, uh, but then you also have twenty seven percent below average. You have a much better, almost almost. You know, you're getting into the three quarters area chance of being below average or a liability, and that's just the basic facts. That's the way it has played out over the course of the last 10 years for rookie offensive line. That's what you're facing. That's what you're plugging in. Just know that going in. Everyone's like gets obsessed with these guys and, oh, let's just go get them. Go get that guy and that guy and plug them in. Yeah, well, that doesn't always work. And you need to face the fact that there's going to be a growing pain. You're a part of that. And what are you willing to chance on that? And the way to get around that is to avoid that liability and, and take a Panesul early and put him at guard. And then the if that's your rookie – What's that? Then your percentages change on that. Yeah, big time. If that's your rookie, you feel much better about it. But we don't know if that will be the case. So, you know, you get into guys like, you know, and some of the names I've listed here as sleepers to watch, you know, Quinn Miners, who we talked a lot about, who was sort of the star of the Senior Bowl because he played with his gut out and he was dominating people from a small <laughs> school. It's great, right? I mean, they, these are guys that will be around. Um, you know, Dylan Reduns from North Dakota State, another small school guy who, you know, we saw a Bengal contingent involved 
uh, up at, at his pro day. Deontay Brown from Alabama, I mentioned, he was just a massive man. Uh, but he slimmed down, so maybe you're going to get more out of him. He was he was he was like six three three sixty four. <laughs> he was playing at, and he's came down to three forty six. Um, but you know the there's there are a lot of guys in the distribution. You know, Dane Brugler's top one hundred has more offensive linemen in the top one hundred than have been than by far and away that have been selected in the top one hundred over the last five years. It's deep. It's particularly deep at interior guys. It's particularly versatile guys that can play guard, center. Guard tackle. There's a there's a number of those different players where you can kind of pick who you like the best to some respect, even in the second and third round, you know, and have instant impact type players. You know, think of last year's second and third round picks. T. Higgins, Logan Wilson, guys that you come in that played pretty well, certainly serviceably immediately, and you love them this year. You know, serviceable in the in the short run, no donkeys. And in the long run, you know, you love the future there at that position. I think, you know, think think about it through that terms and you can get a better feel for the type of player and the type of level of play you might be putting in there at one of those positions. Yeah, and one thing to keep in mind with going back to your 41% number, I mean, you you have to look at what those draft class look like because if it if it was a weaker or thinner class of offensive linemen, Generally, you're still going to have the same number of teams that have a, a, a greater need. And the, the fact that the Bengals are one of the teams that, that has that need this year, it, I think it lessens the likelihood of, uh, of that liability just because of how deep this class is. I think you're going to be able to get a guy that in that second or third round who belongs there as opposed to a team with a with a really big need who didn't get their lineman in the first round and then they reach a little bit. They overdraft a guy in the second or third round and those guys end up being the liabilities. Um so it just it just feels like availability and supply and and all that just Bengals needs everything marries up really nice for them in this draft. Yeah. So I you know kind of where I think it sits right now is you know you got the option of Sewell at number 1 um, and, and if that doesn't happen, you know, look for a double up, whether it's the second round and the fourth round. I'd be stunned if they wait if they didn't use a second round pick, one of their first two picks on an offensive lineman, and that just it feels inevitable with the way things set up through free agency and where they're at. So, but I if it is if it is the second round, I'd look for a double up either with that third or fourth round pick to kind of you know even more try to flip that room a little bit if at least in the long term. Um, with a guy who would be part of your backup plan, uh, maybe going in the fourth round or something, or being aggressive in the third. Imagine, though, if you really got serious about it and you took the Colts strategy from 2018 and you draft Quentin Nelson, number six, and Braden Smith, number 37, and they come out and they were second in the league in sack percentage allowed that year with two rookies starting on the line because they were aggressive in going after it. I mean, to a certain extent, that's what I – I think everybody should want to see them do show that it matters like the lip service to it. You know, don't it's the political thing. It's don't, you know, don't, don't give me your stump speeches. Show me your, show me your budget. Okay. That's how we know and invest in it, care about it to the point that you are prioritizing it. They didn't in free agency and you could do it here. You know, how great would it be if you talked about the great depth in this draft allowing you to go back in a second time? 
I don't think it's totally out of question. If if they don't if they take Chase at five, then yeah, it feels like a lock that there's an O lineman second round. But if they take Sewell at five, I don't think that lessens the likelihood. If there's still an offensive lineman there that they have high on their board, I could see that happening. I don't. I, I think fans are gun shy over the Obwehi Fisher situation in 2015 the front office doesn't think that way they they can't think that way every year is different every prospect is different you you just have to you look at what is right in front of you and not worry about the past there yes they have tendencies and trends and and those all kind of play in but i i i don't think that that is as far-fetched it's not it's not like they're going to go wide receiver o-line or o-line wide receiver i I think o-line o-line is very much on the table yeah I mean, I think it's on the table. I think it's more likely to see a split and then go to yeah. the third round and then you see a double up there. But um, yeah, I, I mean, I wouldn't rule. I wouldn't rule it out. And you know, personally, I just, I don't know. You have you have the number one priority for once as an organization. You need to invest in the damn line. For once, you know, and you just that it's it's a way that you could do it and, and go in there and. Heck, if they both earn starting spots and they both earn starting spots because they're that good and you have backups and you have depth, don't be afraid to have a deep, quality offensive line. Why is this organization afraid of that? Sorry. It always gets me every time. There's no chance I will not rant that line at some point when when we discuss this topic. All right, let's just take a quick break. I want to bring this in. This is Steven Nerdisovic, uh, who is a director of pro scouting. Um, and we kind of we talked last Wednesday and put a full wrap on the free agency season. And we talk a little bit about the draft as well. I just want to bring this in. Steven's a really important uh, guy in the organization. They, you know, they they put in a lot of work. We talk a lot about the small scouting staff that is always brought up, but the guys that are in there, man, they are grinders and they have to be, and, um, they, you know, they, he's gotten the keys, uh, you know, to, as part of that staff the last two years to really flex a muscle in free agency. And it's been, you know, very interesting to be in his office. That's for sure. So I wanted to talk to him wrapping up free agency and talk a little bit about the next month and what that looks like for them. So, uh, here is Bengals director of pro scouting, uh, Steven Rudisovic. I, I always enjoy catching up with all you guys in there who do the work in the shadows, man. Like, this is the real work of NFL teams, not just this time of year, but year-round. You, Mike Potts, uh, Christian Sarkeesian, Andrew Johnson. I mean, you guys that are all grinding down there, I don't think people realize <laughs> how much hard work you guys put in behind the scenes every time you see one name come across the ticker as having signed. So congratulations on, uh, you know, a major project, at, at least, you know, the, the main part of it getting uh, in, you know, in the can. Thanks, Paul. Yeah, thank, thanks again for having me on. This is awesome. always enjoy spending time with you. Yeah, I this was this was a really unique interesting year for you guys from a free agency perspective. I mean, there were a lot of different paths that things could go and more unknowns than normal. How challenging was this year trying to figure out 
the path, not just the path to take, but what these paths are going to look like with all the uncertainty of what, how teams are going to handle the finances of things being so different and they're not being a whole lot of precedent for that. Yeah, it was, uh, it was tough to predict and, um, you know, we, we weren't sure how, how much teams were going to spend early on and, and uh, at what position groups were going to go first. And um, so, yeah, that, that part of it was tough to predict. Um, you know, obviously the edge guys ended up coming off the board first and, and uh, those guys ended, you know, the top guys at least ended up getting paid. And uh, and that was a group that we were looking to focus on in on and uh, on top of, you know, that with the O-line and, um, you know, the top guys ended up getting paid. And, uh, you know, it was hard, like I said, it was hard to predict just how that, how the market was going to go this year. And, and, um, if teams were going to go out and spend early or just try to wait, you know, the day two to see what was left after that. And, um, but we felt like we, we filled a lot of holes this free agency and we're excited with the guys that we, we came away with for sure. I mean, there's, yeah, I mean, you, you start with the edge market. Was there, I mean, you land, you end up landing with Trey Hendrickson and we, there's different guys. Like Carl is a different player than than Trey Hendrickson, and Trey Hendrickson is a different player than the other. A lot of the other edges are out there. I mean, how, how was it difficult to parse through these guys? And did you have to kind of evaluate, reevaluate for yourselves what exactly it is you guys want out of that position? Yeah, I mean, we uh, we spent a lot of time with the coaching staff and uh, trying to put these guys, you know, order in an order one, two, three, four, five, six. Um, you know, number one fits our defensive scheme the best. Number two, so on. Um, so we had these guys in the right order going into it, and um, obviously, Carl is a hell of a player. <clears throat> we would have loved to have him back, uh, but we feel we feel like it worked out for us uh, with Trey, and uh, you know, I think he's gonna fit well with what we're trying to do on defense. He fits well with the vision that we're trying to build here. Uh, You know, extra high motor guy, uh, ultra productive. uh, And uh, I think he's going to, you know, him and Sam are going to kind of feed off of each other on the field. So we're excited about pairing those two up together. I mean, a lot of sacks last year. and But the sack stat, like how much do you take – that into the equation. How how big a part of the pie in evaluation is the actual act of getting a sack? Carl, the king of pressures, the king of disruption, and a lot of times he produced those sacks for other guys. You know, but you know it, he wasn't always the one finishing. Trey Henderson comes out has this year, and he he did a great job of finishing. And people say, well, how much did he do himself? How did you guys evaluate and judge off of sacks? I mean, value finding a value for that number and the importance of it. Um, you know, for me, you know, guys got to be able to finish, finish plays and, uh, and Trey showed that ability on film. And, uh, and when you watch the tape on him, he, uh, not only does he create pressures, he finishes the plays and, uh, and he beat some pretty, you know, darn good tackles this year. When you watch him versus Kansas city, when you watch him versus Tampa Bay, um, you know, some of the top paid tackles in the league. Um, he ended up beating those guys one on one. Sometimes taking on double teams. Um, so uh, yeah, I mean, this, you're looking at the production, yeah, but you also got to go off of what you see on the tape. And uh, you know, when we watch Trey, he's he's always being the guy ahead of him. So that's always a good thing, obviously. Uh, Early on, we you know we saw man, O lineman got paid. 
Yeah, the main ones. All set. Every position had a market setter, market topper. You know, we we're talking about uh, Joe Tooney. We we're talking about Corey Lindsley. We we're talking about Trent Williams. All come out. Those guys get paid, but they're really they're just there just wasn't much depth behind them. How frustrating was that in a year that you guys were, you know, as far as prioritizing that position, but having to sift through kind of a more sparse market, I think, than, than you, you thought it would be. And did you think there would be more players that might end up out there in the mix? Yeah, we, uh, we knew going into free agency it wasn't going to be a great list of all linemen. You know, there was a couple guys at the top and then, uh, you know, low-level starter, you know, low-level starter type backup type players on the O-line. And, um, you know, sure, we've, we would have loved to have have uh, one of those top linemen and uh, you know you sign one of those guys and you can say bye to uh, Larry Ogunjobi, you can say bye to Mike Hilton and you can say bye to Ryan Reef. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you're going into free agency we had we had a lot of holes and uh, you're trying to fill as many as you can before the draft to, to free you up to take the best player there uh, so you know you don't want to put all your chips on, in on, uh, on one guy and, and uh, you know how our luck is here with with the injury bug. And, um, so that was, uh, that was our, our thought going into it was, uh, try to fill as many holes as we can before the draft to uh, free us up to take the best player. Yeah. I mean, you still end up, I mean, Riley ending up here is, I don't know. And I don't know how you guys viewed it. I'm sure there are other options I had on the table, but he seemed like one of those guys that, that, really needed to happen at that point where if it doesn't happen, you're, you're, you kind of have to start reevaluating some other things. Did you guys view it that way? Is that he was kind of in that spot for you that it was one that you guys just was really important to get that deal done at that point? Yeah. I mean, with him, the, uh, you know, the, the important things with him were his experience, the amount that he's played, the amount that he started, uh, the leadership, the qualities that he would bring to that room. And, uh, and his versatility, you know, we feel like he could play really anywhere on the O-line. And, uh, and that's, you know, that, like I said, that's another thing, just going into the draft. Guy, you sign a guy like him, it gives you flexibility moving forward into the draft. And, and um, so, yeah, I, uh, he was one that we were, we were fired up to get. And, you know, the consistency, I mean, I, I don't, you know, however much, Credence you anybody gives to PFF grades is is whatever it is, but um, you know, but still, it, it they they have been close enough that you can give it some respect. I mean, he he they have him graded out. He's almost like this been the same player every year. How how important is that for you guys in particular right now up front? That aspect of of what you're looking for from guys. It's uh, it's extremely important, obviously, with with the quarterback that we have here. Um, you know, we want to give him as much time as possible in the pocket. Uh, you look at his pressure percentages compared to, uh, you know, either some of the players that we've had uh, playing out there in the last couple of years. Uh, it's extremely low, and uh, across across the league, his pressure percentage is uh, below. You know, below or it's better than than you know the average align alignment. So he's uh, he's going to be a big upgrade for us up there, and um, yeah, I mean that. The PFF stuff, the consistency with him when you watch the tape throughout the year has been excellent. So, yeah, and and you know, you never know with age 
I mean, and, and we say this in the league where Andrew Whitworth is, I think he's going to turn 40 in December and is still doing right. it. But there, guys can, obviously can do it later. I mean, he's still in his early 30s. That's not something where you've seen, at least to this point, haven't seen too much of that wear and tear starting to happen with him yet. No, and he's uh, he's he's a technician to the max. I mean, he's so good at uh, at just knowing what the D line was going to do, being able to stalemate them at the line of scrimmage. Um, so yeah, I mean, I and even really watching the tape, you you haven't seen too much of a drop off over the last couple of years, you know. Yeah, um, on the defensive side. You know, you get this uh, again. You're going to have another remake, kind of, of the secondary. Um, Chidobe Awuzie. Uh, I mean, he he was a high high enough pick. What, what did you guys think about him coming out of the draft? I mean, obviously he was a pretty high profile pick. Went in the second round. Did you guys was he on your guys' radar at that point? Yeah, we we liked him coming out, and uh, you know, he's uh, ultra ultra competitive. Uh, great, you know, he's going to check every box off, you know, with the character stuff. And uh, athletically, he's what you're looking for in a corner. Uh, and uh, and he played really well for Dallas his first three years. Battled some injuries this last year. Uh, but I do think we're getting a young a young corner that's ascending. And, uh, you know, we're, we're, he's another guy we're excited to end up with for sure. How do you, I mean, is that a... <laughs> Is that? I mean, you're just trying to get as many good players as you can, but I mean, how 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 crazy is it to, to look out there and think, man, we're going to be putting you're going to have the three starters are all going to have never played it down for the Bengals before next year. It's going to look brand new. Oh yeah, I mean, it's uh, it is crazy to think when you think about our corners. You know, Trey Wayne's obviously missed the whole year last year, um, so it'd be good to get him back out. You have Cheeto on the outside. Mike Hilton as your starting slot, and then Jesse and and uh, Vaughn as your safeties, and then signing Ricardo Allen as a uh, as a piece to our defense that can play some safety, some nickel, uh, and then signing Eli as the depth guy. Uh, we feel pretty good about you know the position our secondary is in right now, going into the draft at least. Uh, so it'll be uh, it'll be exciting once once we get going to see all those guys out there. On Ogan Joby, one question on him. Uh, you know, is was he did you guys view him as a guy who if you just put him maybe a little bit like totally into the three technique kind of can unlock him a little bit more? Because Cleveland had him a little bit more all over the place inside there. Oh, no doubt. Yeah, he's uh you know, he's playing some nose or mostly nose in uh in Cleveland. And uh, to me he's an upfield uh you know, guy that can get up get pressure um so i think that that'll probably be more of his role here playing him at three let him get after the quarterback he was uh extremely productive his his first couple years there in uh in cleveland and ended up with uh obviously a high amount of sacks so he's uh he's a guy that we're you know anticipating um upgrading our pass rush from last year and uh and it's been pretty cool to kind of see all these guys they're all on these group text messages with each other. And uh, I know DJ Reader and Von Bell and, and uh, a lot of the other guys are kind of leading it. But they're all, you know, they, they all, all these guys are hungry to win. And, uh, you know, it's a fun, it's a young roster when you look at it. And uh, a lot of these guys have known each other. I know DJ and, and Larry have known each other for a long time. Um, and 
it's cool to just kind of see how all these guys are starting to gel and, and texting each other about this season. So for you guys, the next month, uh, you know, obviously it's, it's, you know, it's a little different. I guess you went through it last year where all the pro days mostly were taken off the table, but with no combine, I mean, what's the next month look like for you guys? Is it different? How different than normal is it? Or does it, have you guys kind of found a way to, you know, create some normal in this? Um, yeah, no, it's, uh, it's a lot better than it was last year. We're, we're in the office. I, uh, went down to Louisville's pro day, came back up, uh, tested and then, uh, and then signed Mike Daniels yesterday. And, uh, so we're, we're kind of finalizing the, uh, the free agent list, at least the free agent group of guys. Uh, and then the next couple of weeks here, we'll just pro days are wrapping up. And, uh, I think two weeks before the draft, we'll get together and finalize, our meetings on, you know, just kind of what the guys saw on the road from pro days, any, any character updates and, uh, get our list, our list together. Um, the count, you know, one, two, three, four, five. Do you feel like, you know, as much about these guys this year as you'd like, or is that going to be the variable that every team is kind of dealing with, with the lack of in person that happened over the past year and opt outs and all that stuff? Um, yeah, I think a lot of it's just on, uh, you know, a lot of it is going to be off of the relationships we've had at schools or coaches that we know at schools. Um, you know, a lot of these schools throughout the throughout fall were on Zoom calls. Um, so you're trying to, you know, and they're, you know, with 30, 32 other scouts on, the, you know, from other teams. So you're trying to, they're, uh, you're trying to weed through what you think is, truthful on the guys and, and some programs will try to sell their players. Um, so, af, you know, after a Zoom call, normally we would just, or for me at least, I would get off off the uh, call and call a coach that I knew at that school and just verify what I'd heard on the Zoom. And uh, if I felt like I needed to dig a little more, then obviously we dig more. Um, I think I think we'll be good with the character stuff going into the draft. I think a lot of our guys worked hard to to dig as much information on these players as we could, um, obviously without being in the, in the school. But I do think, I think we'll be fine, you know, for sure with the background stuff. Yeah. Does there, I mean, it seems like, you know, you, cause there's still a lot of guys out there as there is every year, but there definitely is a lot of free agents still out there now. Is every, is it a thing where most people you feel most teams and kind of hit the pause button, then let the draft fall, and then everybody kind of reevaluates, and then hot, maybe gets more willing to hop back into the free agent market again. Is that something that's sort of out there? Yeah, I think that's where most teams are right now. I think they're you'll have you know a couple of signings a week here until the draft, and then most teams are just waiting to waiting to get through the draft at this point. Yeah. Uh, well, Steven, I appreciate your time, man. Uh, thanks so much uh, for joining. Congratulations uh, to you and everybody uh, over there in your guys' player personnel department for, and coaching staff and everybody for uh, going through a pretty challenging, active uh, season and coming away with a whole lot of talented players, man. I know it's been a, a grind for you. Thanks, Paul. I appreciate it. Yeah, we uh... – we got to turn these players and you know we gotta get some wins here. So we're uh, we're excited about the season and, and uh, excited to get Joe and, and the guys that we had out last year. And uh, you know I do think we're we're set up set up to win. All right, great to hear from Stephen and talk to Stephen. Uh, catch up with him. I'm sure we will be catching up with him again here once and all those guys in the scouting department once the 
season wraps. Love chatting to them about all the work that they put in behind the scenes, not just this time of year, but all year round. Um, so we will we'll get more from them once we get through the draft season. But um, before we move into running backs, real quick, I do want to talk about we're we're super excited about a new podcast from the Athletic. Uh, it's called Shattered Hope Heartbreak in the New York Knicks. I mean, can we just give this to Moega right now? Like a resident, uh, a resident Knicks fan. Uh, but look, Shatter is a do- it's like a documentary style podcast. It's on the past twenty years of the Knicks. This sounds just debilitating for a true fan. But the, the thing is, it's got all these wild, crazy stories about the Knicks under James Dolan, which I think it's sort of like you could you could hate listen to this, but be amazed by it. I I, I love this. I love behind the scenes debauchery and failures personally. So I can't imagine all the stories people some people have. So, so some of the people they talk to, they talk to Patrick Ewing, Penny Hardaway, Jamal Crawford, Nate Robinson. Donnie Walsh, Jeff Van Gundy, David Fisdale, Jeff Hornacek, all people that have been quality people put in and the Knicks spit out because they're terrible. Uh, and they all have stories to tell uh, in the meantime. You'll, you'll learn all about what caused the end of the 90s Knicks, what it's like to be banned from the Garden. Jay, you probably... Do you can you tell me? I'm sure you've been banned from the Garden at this point, or at least what it's like to be banned from anywhere. I'm sure you're banned from somewhere. I don't think I am. I, I, surprisingly, I don't think I am. But I was just—I was going to—I think James Dolan will try to ban the podcast from the garden. Like no one's <laughs> allowed hope. to listen to that podcast while they're in the garden. Yeah, turn it off. Uh, uh, why Carmelo and J- and Jeremy Lin couldn't coexist? Uh, the unusual way that David Fisdale and Chris S. Przingis began their relationship, and what Garden Insiders say it's like to work for James Dolan. It's going to be insane. Uh, new episodes of Shattered are released every Tuesday, so search for Shattered. Hope, heartbreak, in the New York Knicks, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, all right, let's jump in here and uh, just dive into running backs real quick. We're not going to spend as much time uh, on running backs as we do on the offensive line. No, but let's, Jay, kind of, where, where did you... When you went through this, you know, I think we have an idea of what to expect. We we tiered this out as tier three, yeah, um, which is sort of you know not going to be early, but certainly one that they want to address at some point. Could get away with not addressing. Um, how did you kind of view this when you went through it? Yeah, that was the same way that you were earlier, where it just feels like early on day three they're they're gonna take a running back. Now the 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 big wild card in this. And um, you never know how much stock to put in these mock drafts, but you're starting to see Travis ATN drop down a little, a little, a little out of the first round in some. And if he is somehow still there at 38, and we know how the, the, the Bengals love the best player available aspect of the draft and skill guys, and it is a, pos- a position of succession, you know, jo- Joe Mixon signed this this big extension, but you know in the in the draft series piece, I have the table about what to expect. Guys that have quality twelve hundred yard seasons used to be a lot of them happened after age of twenty six. That that trend has really switched, and they're all coming at age twenty five. and And you rarely see guys once they get to twenty six having those bigger years and. and Joe Mixon will be 26 next year. So if if they're looking at a succession plan and a guy like Travis Etienne was there, would they pull the trigger on him? 
I, I don't think they end up with one of the top four. It, it still feels like fourth or fifth round and probably the, the way there's so many of the, there's like this gap, there's four in the top 60 and then there's this big gap. And, and then there's like the second tier group. And it feels like when the Bengals pick early in the fourth round, there's going to be a lot to choose from and they're going to be more likely to, to figure they can get one of those guys in the fifth round. Um, you had him in your mock draft. I had him in the piece. I just I think Trey Sermon is an ideal fit in, in terms of scheme, in terms of what the Bengals love. It, there's a lot of guys that fall in this category, but they love the guys that split carries in college, that don't come in with tons of wear on their bodies. And Trey Sermon obviously falls into that class. He was barely used at all all year. And then when the lights went on, the Big Ten championship game in the college football semifinal and championship, he got hurt very early. But he was he was lights. I mean, he was unbelievable in those. As a Ohio State fan, I watched those games all the way through, and it was it was amazing. You just never saw that kind of a performance coming from him, and it just it feels like he is is the guy. Maybe if they skip on him in the fourth, they don't get him in the fifth. But it feels like he's the best fit of this group. If they pick a running back in the second round, I already will pre-write a absolute flaming of them organizationally. <laughs> <laughs> just because it's not O-line or just because they don't need a running back in the second round? You cannot decide to pay Joe Mixon and then draft a second round running back when you have so many needs, including the guys in front of the running back. Guy, you want you get the same two rants from me. Stop not investing in the offensive line and stop investing in the running back position, unless you are just doing it at, with draft picks. You just can't do the two. Now I have no problem, and I think it is advisable and a great move to use a fourth or fifth round draft pick on a running back. It's a great spot to find them. You see year after year guys get developed from that range and become very good players, productive players, particularly when they're in a sharing role. You know? So there's nothing wrong with doing that, particularly with somebody when you have somebody you paid. The other way, the other note on Mixon, I mean, he has an out in his contract. That's the thing. After this year. And look, we don't... All seems to be, be the right things are all being said about Joe Mixon and his foot. Okay. Even though we still don't really quite understand what exactly went on there, other than it was very weird. Um, but there is an out in his contract. And so if things don't go well this year, if he isn't, if he doesn't look right, there's a chance to move out and move on. But that's just it. If you have a fourth or fifth round guy behind him, or if he gets hurt again, you don't want to get stuck like last year where you don't feel like you have that real explosive dynamic player behind him. A guy you would take who would be young, who a fourth or fifth round draft pick, can come in and make an instant impact that happens year after year. Yes. We see undrafted guys come in and make impacts yes. all the time. So you're right. That I, I'm just thinking with, with Travis Etienne, we, we saw what what this LSU offense that the Bengals have have not duplicated, but but in some regards replicated. We saw how dynamic the running back Edwards Hilaire was in that offense, and I, I think that would be something if, if they get if they get Sewell in the first round and, and they feel like they've they've done what they want to do, top of the draft O line, and, and maybe some of those tackles that 
would be there, go a little earlier than expected. I just, I think the temptation would be there if, if ATN fell. I think he's the only guy they would even consider in the second round, but it, it's just, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not saying it's going to happen, but I just think the temptation would be there. Whoever would be doing the tempting needs to be duct taped and thrown in a closet. <laughs> <laughs> Fair warning, Bengals front off. Fair, well, hey, that's why they don't let me in the room. I show up with duct tape. It's not good, right? <laughs> a cloth I, I rag. I don't, I don't advocate this. This is not me advocating this. I'm just, I'm just saying theoretically. It's very much a theory. Uh, so I, you know, I, but I think you look at where they could get them, what they could do. You know, what we're whatever we're going to see happen with Giovanni Bernard, a key thing that you mentioned in here that I think is really the most important thing, we're talking about what are they looking for. Look for someone who can catch the ball out of the backfield. Look for somebody with nice hands who's a good receiver because, one, you mentioned Edward Tolaris, type of way that he plays. When he was at LSU, they like guys who are reliable, solid players out of the backfield. And this is a Giovanni Bernard replacement. That's who mm-hmm. this is. So let's talk about guys that have that ability, that that are good receivers, and that's who you know. When you're looking at who does come out of the board, maybe they, maybe uh, the reason they're available in the fourth or fifth round is because uh, they're they're maybe they're not the best rusher, or they have some limitations there. But man, they're dynamic catching the ball out of the backfield. Think. Antonio Gibson, who you mentioned here last year, you know, when you talk through the Memphis uh, lens of Kenneth Gainwell, who's out this year, who Washington got later in the draft, who's a dynamic receiving threat, former receiver, like what is he, kind of a chess piece, and comes in and has a huge impact for Washington football team. Well, that's the type of thing. That's the type of player you're looking for out of here who could be dynamic, who can catch the ball, who you can still get late in the draft. Those guys are going to be available. Yeah, absolutely. And, and there's a lot of them. It's it, like I mentioned, there's that gap between the top four, then there's this big gap, and then there's a bunch of guys in that that range of maybe 100 to 140 that that would would hit the Bengals in the fourth round or to roll the dice on the fifth. But yes, that I, I don't see maybe Travion Williams steps up and becomes that guy out of the backfield, but he hasn't showed it yet. And, and Samaj P. Ryan is more of a you know a, a running backup to Joe Mixon he I, he's not necessarily a a big threat out of the backfield as a pass catcher so that is top of mind when it comes to whoever they take whatever round it is fourth fifth even if they wait later yep that's kind of a uh, synopsis again for more in-depth stuff on the running backs and the offensive line you can go uh, onto the site and check that out uh, as we, we kind of dive into each of those positions, and we'll keep running here through offense, so a few more offensive positions the rest of this week. Again, a draft that I think we expect to be very heavy on offense um, due to what has happened in free agency. Jay, you had a run pass or boot on that, didn't you? I did. The, the Bengals have eight draft picks this year scheduled. Who knows if they trade? But assuming they, they pick the eight, how many of those guys do you think will be offensive players? Is it seven or eight, five or six, or four or less? Uh, I'm going to run with five to six. I think it'll be a little over half. I don't think they'll go all in, especially when you get into those late round picks. But I mean, you're right when you think about it. You know, there you could see. I, I mean, I think there's got to be a couple defensive linemen added. Yeah. I mean, at least, even if they're just late 
projects or whatever, or middle round, whatever it is. I mean, you got to think it's some. There's got to be a couple defensive linemen. So that puts you in the five to six range. But I, you know, you could certainly see two defensive linemen drafted and six offensive players. Absolutely, you could see. You could certainly see that. Uh, so I'll say five to six, the most likely. I'd be pretty stunned if they went heavy in on the defense again, considering how much they've done in free agency. So I'll, I'll boot four or less. Yeah, I'm right there with you. I, I, I think seven to eight, as much as they need help on offense, that would be crazy. Even six. Six out of eight, you just don't see, not just the Bengals, any team. You don't see um, a team go that heavy on one side of the ball. I, I think the number comes in at five. Um, and so I'll, I'll run with five, five to six, pass on seven to eight, and boot boot four or less. It's just – it's. It was they. They had more defense than offense in the draft last year. Most of the free agency last year. Most of the free agency this year. Defense. Um, this is this is where they they start stocking up on offense. I agree with you. Uh, all right, so we we will keep this rolling and we'll we'll dive into a few more positions. the The release schedule is up on on every single one of these pieces that we have on the site. Again, just go to click on the link and you can subscribe uh, to the Athletic and, and get all this stuff and so much more as we go. Head first into the draft. We'll have tight ends and quarterback coming up uh, the rest of this week before we head into next week. So anyway, uh, thanks everybody for listening. Uh, appreciate your time, and we will be we'll be back as we will talk tight ends and quarterbacks next time we're here with you. So thanks everybody. We'll talk to you next time. Have a good one, everybody.